Let's begin with a word of prayer, church. Father in heaven, I just want to acknowledge that the world that we live in is our Father's world. We rest in the thought, God, that you are the one who made the rocks, the trees, and the grand mountains, and the rivers, and the valleys, O oh God, to our hearts. So that as we look at these immense constructions, things that skyscrapers and the largest buildings that we could ever build cannot even compete with, God, we are reminded, O oh God, that this world belongs to you. God, we worship you because you are an awesome God, a God who lives forever, a God who dwells in unapproachable light, a God who is Alpha, Omega, beginning and end. So God, to you we lift up our praise. Father, I pray today as we look at your word and we think through uh, the nature of Christian worship, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be open to truth and that you would encourage us, God, from your word, O oh Lord, to prize you, enjoy you, and to savor you rightly. For it is you, O oh God, who is worthy of all of our affections and praise. God, help us open our eyes to see the hidden faults of our culture, even our Christian culture, to the truth that comes through your word. I pray this and I ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, um, today we're going to be wrapping up our series on Christian worship that we've been working on this summer and last week, it was a really interesting time looking at how worship has progressed since the days of the early church all the way up to the golden era of hymn writing in the 18th century of the church. You know, I um, was pointed out that, you know, the church of Jesus Christ was born very powerfully in song. And how could it not, right? It served a resurrected and a living Savior who had conquered death, something that no other religious leader had ever done before. And since then, no religious leader has done since. Jesus is the only one who has died and his grave and the tomb is empty. And for that, we sing praise. You know, there's a little-known play called Lazarus Laugh that was written at basically the turn of the century in 1925. And it tells the fictional story of what could have happened to Lazarus after Jesus raised him from the dead. And in this play, there's a, a scene there in which the father celebrates his son coming back from the realm of death, to which Lazarus in the play replies, there is no death. Now, what the crowd is curious at his answer, and he asks him, Lazarus, like, what's beyond there? You're the only one who's gone over into death and come back. And Lazarus just keeps laughing at them. He just laughs and laughs, and he says, beyond there, he says, it's only more life. Life, life, and more life. Now, the play goes on, right? You can read about it. It's, uh, it's available in public domain. And he's eventually tortured and killed by the cruel Roman emperor. And, but throughout the whole play, though he goes through sadness and there's difficulties, there is this underlying theme of laughter. And really the point is, is not that I think Christians can laugh, you know, at every single moment of their lives as if we're high or on drugs or something. That's not what Jesus does to us. But what it means that at the end of the day, the power of death is ultimately broken and that beyond, you know, I mean, death is not something we need to be afraid of, but something that actually we can celebrate. The real issue is 
How do you threaten a person who has already been killed once and knows that there's nothing scary on the other end of the doorway? You can look at him and say, if you don't stop laughing, I will kill you. But really, it means nothing to a guy who already knows there's nothing to be afraid of on the other side. You know, for us Christians, death is not a dead end or something that we need to wonder about. Death is actually a doorway. And it's a doorway that is built on the one who says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And that anyone who believes in him will not die, but have everlasting life. So the road of the doorway to death, of course, may be difficult. It may be painful, and it may be cancer in a hospital bed. But the truth of the matter is, for us as Christians, we know that once we cross the doorway, there is nothing to be afraid of on that other side anymore. On the other side is our eternal home. It is the golden shores. It is the land of the great king. It is the place where our hope is and where our heart has found its treasure. And that is why Christians can go to their deaths and have gone to their deaths in the past singing to Jesus. You know, the question for us today as we think about the nature of worship is, the songs that we sing, the songs that we sing to Jesus, are they songs that will take us not only to death's doorway, but take us to the other side on the golden shore? Do the songs that we sing reflect our belief that our Lord truly has conquered the grave and that we as people have no reason anymore to be afraid. That's the question we need to ask. And when people look at the way that our lives sing, not just our lips, are they moved by the music or are they moved by the message that we communicate to them? What are we people? Do we love Christian music or do we love the message in it, the one whom the music is about? That is the question for us. So today, we're going to be looking at Christian worship from the 20th century to today, the modern era, what we call contemporary worship. We're going to see how this came to be, why we sing the way that we do, and what lessons we can learn from it about how we can better worship God. There is a university professor at Duke University named Dr. Lester Ruth who has written extensively on the topic of Christian contemporary worship and how it came to be. And he makes an interesting observation about the, t the 20th century. The idea of contemporary worship actually saw a surge in usage three times in the 20th century. The first time was in the 1920s when people started talking about being contemporary in worship. And at that time, what it meant is that people use the term to refer to the worship of a particular time period. In other words, they meant contemporary worship as in 16th century contemporary worship, 18th century contemporary worship, hymn singing, or things like that. The term starts to gain more familiarity to us in the second usage during the 1960s and the 1970s, and this was a time of major upheaval. The church was very interested in the idea of contemporary worship and it referred really to songs that did three things. One was the songs needed to have a contemporary musical style. The second was the idea that the songs of the church should address contemporary social issue, issues. And the third thing was that the songs that were sung needed to be in a contemporary English style. In fact, of all these things, the biggest change when people talked about contemporary worship in the 1960s and the 70s wasn't the coolness of the music. It was actually a change in the English language. That's actually what was first and foremost. 
See, if you go back and you could take a time machine, well, some of you have lived in the 1960s and 70s, not me, but you might remember going into churches and hearing the pastors pray. And they didn't pray the way that people normally talked. Generally, people prayed like this. My God, I thank thee because thou art holy and gracious. My God, thou alone art holy. And to you, O Lord, we do offer our highest praise. They spoke basically Shakespearean, you know, in that time. And the question is why? And they spoke that way and talked that way in prayer because their prayers were shaped by the King James Bible. So that kind of language sounds archaic to us, but in 1960s and the 1950s, that was vogue. Now, as other translations of the Bible came into being and people started to modernize the English, that began to change. But for those who had grown up in a traditional church culture, that's just how people talked and how they prayed, especially when they were in public. Now, for the broader culture that was starting a rebellion you know, against the social norms and things that were happening that day, that kind of language was totally irrelevant and out of touch with reality. This was the time in which Elvis was starting out with rock and roll, and he was singing things like, you ain't nothing but a hound dog. And when you brought that kind of music and you compared it to the organ that was playing in church, you looked at it and you said, these guys are irrelevant. The church has nothing to say to the modern culture. People at that time, especially young people, began looking at this disconnect and craving something, saying like, there's a traditionalism, there's a formalism here that doesn't seem right. And the idea of authenticity, being free to do worship and not in a particular frozen way started to get people's attention. Now, there were some reforms made in Christian music during this time. For example, there was a young people's movement that I think was just birthed by the Spirit of God called the Jesus People, basically ex-hippies who realized that Jesus was the real solution to their problems, and they were passionate about him, went for simple living. Many of them lived in communes, were rabid about sharing their faith. You couldn't stop them. And they began to write music in this new style as well to reflect their simple faith and their trust in God. This is a time where you got songs like, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, right? You know, other classics like this, and they have easy choruses like Alleluia, Alleluia, and you could sing it. And it was verse, chorus, verse, chorus. And this was a major departure from the style of the church that sang verse, 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 verse. It was revolutionary. But you have to understand that as revolutionary as it was to the church, these were revolutionary times. People, highways were being built in America the TV was growing. Civil rights activists were afoot everywhere. They were all over the news. And people of this era, whom we now call the baby boomers, were growing up in a time of absolute turmoil. They questioned everything that was going on around them. Just because something was old no longer made it right. In fact, if something was old, maybe you should be suspicious of it because how do you know that what is traditional and being rammed down your throat is actually something you should believe? And what they did was they created their own counterculture and they used music as their common language, an invisible language that united the whole people that fought for change. And with music as their platform, they were able to begin a major change in society and to craft a new youth society with new ideals, new values that hadn't been before. 
You know, it said that language is the bearer of culture. And this young group of baby boomers at the time used music and the language and the culture that came with it to establish values that overturned what was considered important in society. Peers became more important than the family. Instead of the community needs, individualistic needs became more important. And this kind of thinking, for better and for worse, also affected the church. And you can see this in the way that the church reacted as it wrote its songs. A common verse that was quoted all throughout this period by those baby boomers as they fought to reform Christian worship was Psalm 96, verse 1. Sing to the Lord a new song. Out with the old. The main verse for us is 96, 1. Sing to the Lord a new song. A new song. A new song. Nobody wanted the lifeless, fake, irreverent Shakespearean English of the services that were running. Now, some of the songs, like I said, of this period were really good. You, there's a reason why songs like Seek Ye First the Kingdom of God or I've Decided to Follow Jesus became so popular. Good lyrics, biblical, easy to sing, in language that people could actually understand. But other songs of this period during this experimentation of contemporary worship were absolutely terrible. There is a hymn, for example, that was written in an attempt to refresh the hymn genre and to make it more relevant to people's lives called God of Earth and Outer Space. And it goes like this. God of Earth and Outer Space, God of love and God of grace, bless the astronauts who fly as they soar beyond the sky. God who flung the stars in space, God who set the sun ablaze, fling the spacecraft through the air, let man know your presence there. God of power, God of might, God of rockets firing bright. Hearts ignite and thrust within love for Christ to share with men. Now, this hymn made it into the 1975 hymnal used by the Southern Baptist Convention. And unfortunately, it has been nominated online and by many people as one of the worst hymns ever produced. Now, to be fair in an analysis of this hymn, the hymn is not heretical. God is a God of love. He certainly is a God of outer space. But the problem with this is it is very difficult to sing things like, bless the astronauts who fly in the middle of a worship service. That is a niche market of individuals. Most likely, you will never have an astronaut in your church. Up to 1977, no, so 1975, there were only 77 people who had ever been in space. The probability that one of those was in your church was extremely low. God of power, God of might, God of rockets firing bright. I read that and I thought, I think they just needed a word to rhyme with might. So they picked bright and the only thing bright is a rocket. Hearts ignite and thrust within. Now, of course, the human heart naturally should be aflame, you know, with love and passion for Jesus. But what you don't want to do is to go over the top and compare the human heart's passion to that of a booster rocket. That's dangerous in church. A booster rocket type flame for Jesus could incinerate everyone around you, or if it doesn't kill you that way, could leave you choking on the plumes of smoke afterwards. So it's just, this is not quite the image that you want to get. So you, you, you'd read, you sing the hymn and you realize something is not quite right with that. 
one writer wrote about this and said, just, you know, it's really amazing that someone was able to write a song that had the words spacecraft, rockets, astronauts, outer space, and thrust all in a few stanzas. I read the story of one worship leader who was picking random songs to sing and a congregation member called out this song. They worked through the first stanza and after that he just stopped and he tore it out of the hymnal and he couldn't continue. Basically, second wave contemporary worship was a highly experimental phase in Christian history. Some of the stuff stuck and made it through. Other stuff totally flopped and really did not gain much traction. And as the experiment wore on in the 70s and the 80s, people kind of got tired of it and so, but then there was a third wave that came of the usage of the term in the 1990s. As churches were faced with declining attendance as the culture moved farther and farther away from the church. The culture, you see, was growing more and more consumeristic at the time. You know, more shopping available, things that you can go to, huge department stores. And the church, in an attempt to try to react to this declining culture, a declining church attendance, decided to cater to the consumer as well. Churches at that time began offering both traditional and contemporary worship services to give people the idea of choice. Nobody wanted to be behind you know, seeker-sensitive churches started adding plays to their uh, Sunday services, performance, relatives talks to invite people, good coffee was served, new programs were made. The idea of modern church shopping was born. In the past, you really didn't have much of a choice of where you went. You went to a church, and the question you asked in your mind was, how do I fit into this church and the needs of the community? All that change in the consumeristic revolution of the 90s as people began hunting for churches and asking the question, how does this church instead fit my needs and where I'm at currently right now? And music, as you see, began to reflect this as well in the way that the type of songs were coming out. Music was sold, and there were songs all over, all over the globe now. It was a global market. Now, some of these songs were really great, right? Like in the UK, you had Matt Redman uh, releasing Blessed Be Your Name, Tim Hughes afterwards, you know, in the 90s into the 2000s, Here I Am to Worship. Keith Getty and Stuart Townend started producing modern hymnody like In Christ Alone, which became an absolute hit. But also on the Australian continent, there was Hillsongs Australia that sprang up and they revolutionized the sound of Christian contemporary worship. They introduced the idea of big sound, hard drumming, electric guitars, major distortion, the idea not just of a full rock sound, but no. You were talking not just about a worship service, but a new phrase, a worship experience instead. It's estimated that Darlene Check, who was one of the most famous hymn, uh, songwriters at Hillsong, who wrote the song Shout to the Lord, according to Hillsong and their stats, that song at the height of its popularity was being sung by 35 million Christians worldwide every week. Services were restructured at this time, and people began using the language of worship set, actually, for the first time. The worship pastor and the worship leader was born, and the pastor actually moved farther and farther off the stage. People talked about sets and flow, ushering people into the presence of God, having an authenticity, free-flowing kind of worship. And when you think about this and you look at church history, this is very different from the type of services that you would see just a hundred years before that. For example, if you go to Charles Haddon Spurgeon's church and you look at the order of service from the 19th century when he was pastoring there, it would read like this instead. Silent meditation, 
Second, pastoral prayer. One hymn. Bible reading with commentary. Next, a long pastoral prayer. Next, a single hymn. Then a sermon and finally a benediction. You see how different this actually is. The service opens with a time in which everybody is silent in meditation and quiet before God. Something which is almost unheard of in a modern service because that is referred to in modern culture as the dreaded dead space. You don't ever want to have dead space in the modern worship service. After that, there's not just one pastoral prayer. There's two lengthy pastoral, two pastoral prayers, one lengthy for the people of God. There's no such thing as hymn sets, but actually only single hymns that are sung here and there. There's not only a sermon, but there's actually another time in which there's an exposition of the Bible in which the Bible is just taught, exposited, and comments are offered. Now, this type of sermon structure is extremely rare these days. And I think Dr. Ruth is right in noting that the modern worship service, he says, has a diminished prayer diet and a diminished scriptural diet as well. And the result is two things. One is that actually we are starving as a people. And the second is that we have become impatient. No longer does the modern service in the modern church teach people that patience, bearing with your neighbor, quietness, you know, are things to be valued. It's about the program moving forward, forward, and if you don't like it, you leave and go somewhere else where you like it. The question that we ask is, how did we get here? Why is there such a shift? And I think part of the answer actually concerns the way that music has changed over the last 100 years. You know, when you compare Christian hymns of the past to contemporary modern worship songs, you ask the question, like, what's the difference? And I think that the answer to this is that when you look at the old hymns, I would say that they are largely melody-driven, and the lyrics are tied close to the melodies, whereas contemporary worship songs, as uh, worship leader David Wesley says, are what he calls groove-based. Now, what we mean by that, for example, let me give you an example. If you take a hymn, for example, like How Great Thou Art, the way that the hymn sings and its power matches the way that the melody and the music moves. So, for example, you will sing, Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. As you go up on the scale, also the lyrics seem to match it, and it increases in power, and you sing. So the driver behind these old hymns and the songs was the melody line, and it required the people of God, with their energy and their singing and their thinking about the lyrics, to push the music forward and the song. Modern worship songs are different. Um, so, for example, if you take a song like Chris Tomlin's Our God, you will notice that the way that the song starts up is it has a riff, right? So it has a riff like this. And so it has a repeated sort of refrain and, a, and, and something that plays over and over again. And it's absolutely independent of the main melody line, which goes, water you turned into wine. And the question is, is, is what does that do? Uh, it's distinctive. It's very memorable. And within two bars of playing something like that, if you know the song, you will know exactly what is being played. It's a very distinctive pulsating beat. Now, what it functionally does in music, this motif, is that it creates an energy to the song that is independent of your singing. 
In other words, what happens is that the music moves, and what you do as a worshiper instead is not look to drive the music or drive the worship experience, but you wait as the worship experience comes to you. And the moment when the beat is right, you also come in. Um, the power of singing of the old hymns takes a back seat to the music instead. So contemporary worship music in general is characterized by this groove that moves sort of independently. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with a groove-based worship song. I think it works, and you know that that, that, that I think there's some of these songs that are actually really, really good and have solid lyrics. But I think there's actually a danger that comes with it as well that most of us don't realize. And that is that if you like groove-based music and you just kind of go with the flow and you enjoy it, it is entirely possible that you will begin in liking songs and thinking they are great, not because you've actually thought about the words or the lyrics that are in it, but simply because you like the beat and the tune. And this happens so often when some Christians bring up songs like, oh, have you looked at the words of that song? You say, I know, but it's so good. It's so catchy and everybody likes dancing to it. What's the harm in this sort of song? And it feeds into this cultural idea of feelism that I talked about a number of weeks ago. If it feels good, it must be good. And this is why songs in our popular culture, though they might not even be written in English, are able to attract a North American audience. You go on YouTube and you view the top 10 songs of all time. Uh, even for English speakers, it's funny. Right now, number one is a, Lat uh, is a Spanish song called Despacito terrible lyrics, you know what I mean, to it, and a horrible song, yet it's number one. Another song, Gangnam Style, is not English either. It's Korean, and it's spoken by less than 100 million people around the world, and yet it's sitting up there in the sixth place. What do these songs have in common? And the commonality to them is they all have an incredible powerful beat, something that's memorable and easy to sing, and actions, and it makes people actually blind to the fact that you don't even need to understand the lyrics. All you enjoy is the beat and the feel. I remember chatting once with a lady who was grooving to Lady Gaga by herself, and I was just watching her. And I got talking with her about it and about the lyrics. I said, don't you, don't you think the lyrics are, are actually really quite bad, you know? And not just poetically, but I mean, they're just terrible. And she said, I know they're really bad, but she said, but it's just so catchy. And she continued dancing. And I remember going afterwards and pulling out the lyrics uh, for Lady Gaga's song, Bad Romance, and reading them very slowly. And I thought, but these are really dumb. If you were to read them slow, it reads like this, ra, ra, ah, ah, ah. Roma, Roma, ma. I want your ugly. I want your disease. I want your everything as long as it's free. And you look at, would you really want somebody to give you cancer or AIDS? You know, this is, this is hardly quality poetry. And yet, one billion listens to and views. See, people listen to this stuff and you groove to it. Why? because of the power of the pulse and music that moves all along by itself that is independent of music. And this phenomenon doesn't just happen with music. It happens with movies and music as well. You know, there was a number of years ago where people were absolutely bonkers and teens crazy about the Twilight series. You know, it's a vampire thing, you know. Never seen it myself, but I read about it. You know, if you remove all the music and you actually analyze the romance, which a number of psychologists actually did, they noted that the female lead and the male lead together 
actually were a dysfunctional couple. In fact, the female lead who was threatened by the vampire male lead exhibited, they said, all the characteristics of an individual who was being abused by a power, a person with authority and power over them. And yet, why do teenagers and others drink this stuff up and say, this is a pattern for romance. I wish I was a vampire or a werewolf or something, or something of that sort. The reason why is the packaging, it's the beat. It's the strings that sing in those pleasant moments communicating to the idea, this is what romance looks like. This is supposed to be beautiful when really deep down underneath is actually a dysfunctional person that you should never actually be with. So all this to say, you know, is that the same thing I think applies to Christian music. You know, it's often said you are what you eat, but I think that the it's true also when it comes to music. You are actually what you sing. And you might not know it, but the what you sing and what you listen to shapes the way you think and the way that you actually are and what your functional beliefs are. You know, oftentimes, I think it has sad, not all songs, but that many songs in Christian contemporary worship have become so shallow that it actually doesn't take much to make a worship song. In fact, there is one YouTuber named Blimey Cow who released a video called How to Make a Christian Worship Song in Five Minutes. And he did it in like basically seven easy steps. Number one, he says, pick four chords that are easy to play and repeat because that's all Christian music uses. Second is he says, if you run out of words, use a filler like hallelujah. Hallelujah is one of those great church words he says that you can sing and it has no rules about how it can be sung. You can sing hallelujah and end with a very strong yeah, or you can drag it out go hallelujah and then keep going from there so it's a great where you can fill anything with that third thing he said was you add rhymes sing rhymes with king perfect love always goes with enough rhyme days with grace and praise all these things fourth thing he says essential component just add fire in our world, something always needs to be on fire. Whether it's a generation that's on fire, hearts are on fire, God igniting uh, some, uh, you know, a church on fire or souls, something needs to be on fire. Put that in and it's good. Fifth thing, he says, is that you just add a great guitar riff to it. As long as you do that and you have a pulse to move the rhythm forward, boom, you're done. You have an instant worship psalm. And of course, you can make alterations to the psalm. Praising God, you are our one desire, set our hearts on fire. To turn the song in from a church song into a youth song, you simply add a bridge to it with lots of woes in it. So you go, whoa, and ask everybody to raise their hands, and suddenly you have a youth worship song. So you can convert these things back and forth very quickly. Um, the point is that his video has over a million views. And one of the funniest things about it was a commentator wrote, uh, this is really hilarious because it's true. And this summarizes, unfortunately, the vast majority of worship songs that seem to be on the radio in the last 10 years. See, the question that we have to ask ourselves then is why do we make songs that are catchy and we can produce in five minutes with very little thinking about the lyrics? The question we have to ask ourselves is why do we do that? And I think if we look deep in ourselves, we have to ask as Christians, is what we love making music to God or what we love making music to God. There is a difference between those two. Just like a person, there are some people in this world who are in love with a person, and there are others who are in love with the idea of being in love. 
And those are two very, very different things. See, the danger is that with shallow lyrics or, or things, you know, just that don't match up with the Bible, you might actually find in your own soul what you enjoy is the music about God more than the message about God himself. What you might enjoy is the experience of verbally worshiping God rather than experience of knowing God himself and loving him for who he is. And if that's true, that's dangerous. But it's so hard to tell when the beat is just moving along and what your feelings tell you is that this is good. Now, despite some of the dangers that I've highlighted, you know, here with the contemporary worship movement, I don't think all is bad. I think there are some, at least three things that I want to just talk about today that I think are really good and worth us celebrating about. If you're outlining, uh, you can put this down, number one here. The scriptures must be our guide as to what is acceptable in worship and not tradition. Before us judging something that's new, the question that we always need to ask is not, does this feel good to me? The question is, does this match up and is it in line with God's word and what he has to say about what is acceptable worship? For example, in contemporary North American worship today, it is very acceptable to lift up your hands. In this church, I see some of you lift up your hands. Nobody's going to come up to you and shoo you, you know, or frown at you for doing so. But did you know that in the 1950s and the 1960s, and in a number still of traditional churches, the idea of raising your hands is just asking for trouble. You will have somebody who comes up to you or whispers and starts gossiping and say, did you see that person singling themselves out by raising their hands. Who do they think they are? Drawing attention to themselves rather than God? Woe to you, Pharisee, who likes the praises of man, putting yourself up there in Christian worship, lifting your hands for all people to see. Yet, the truth of the matter is, some people certainly do lift their hands up to get attention, but not everybody does. And in fact, those who sing traditional hymns are not scot-free either. There are many of those who sing traditional hymns and judge those who lift their hands, and yet their own lives are hypocritical, either full of worldliness or idolatry. So unforgiveness, sin, you know, secret sins of the heart, you know, is the raising of hands right or wrong? You know, I think we honestly have Pentecostal brothers and their theologians to thank as they fought against a culture that frowned against hands and they pulled out scriptures like Psalm 63, 4 and says, look at this. The word clearly says, in your name, I will lift up my hands. Psalm 134, verse 2, lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. You know, our Pentecostal brothers during that era came to see the lack of expression in worship, not as a mark of godliness, but in fact something that needed to change, to be more in line with the scriptures. I'm not saying that everybody is mandated to raise their hands. However, if you do so, there's biblical warrant to say that you are genuinely praising the Lord. Praise God, you know, that we have his word that frees us from the trappings of tradition and gives us practices that are good for life. You know, the second thing I think that we can thank the contemporary worship movement for is this. Number two, the worship of God must not be mechanical, but it must be spirit-led. You know, Jesus said it himself, right? The worshipers of God, the time is coming when the true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. Or in Matthew 15, when Jesus is talking, he says, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You know, God is not interested in worship that is the product of simply lips and tradition and idle formalism, but he loves 
He loves truth, genuine authenticity with him. Those who love God worship in spirit and truth. Furthermore, we learn that sometimes when we worship, the spirit of God actually comes into our midst and moves us to live differently. You read in Acts chapter 13, verse 2, when Paul, Barnabas, and others are worshiping the Lord and fasting, it says, the Holy Spirit said, set apart from me, Paul and Saul and Barnabas, for the work to which I have called them. Now, I know that we should plan. We should have worship sets. We should practice. And we should store up scripture in our hearts so that when the time comes and we feel led to be able to speak a word of encouragement, a word of knowledge, we're able to do so. What we need to remember, I think, is that our worship services should not just be formal things that follow a set pattern with no deviation, but should move, change, react to our times, and also as the Spirit of God leads us. You know, one of the things that contemporary worship actually has given us is a musical um, term called the bridge, or this, this, it's, it's, a, it's a piece that works in a song. Now, many of us in listening to songs on the radio know intuitively what a bridge is. It's the part that's not the verse, and it's not the chorus. Many people just think it sounds cool, and that's where you put in like an electric guitar solo or stuff. But actually what the bridge does, and why it was introduced, really was to help with this idea of authenticity and freedom in worship. Now, um, to give you an idea of how this works, is uh, I'm, I'm just going to play for you a little section of uh, How Great Is Our God. I think most of you probably know this song here. It's this famous song by Tim Con- uh, by uh, Chris Tomlin. And the bridge, and after the, the chorus, which is, How great is our God, sing with me, how great is our God, you get to this section called the bridge. And the bridge goes like this. Name above all names, worthy of all praise. My heart will sing, how great is our God. And then the worship leader at this point says, guys, sing it again, right? And then you go into name above all names. But the way that the bridge is musically structured is it allows you actually not just to repeat it, but you can go anywhere else into the song. So as a worship leader, you could say, my heart will sing, how great is our God. Guys, verse 2. Age to age he stands. Or if you want to change it up, you can go at the end. How great is our God. And build up intensity and go. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. And so the bridge created a flexibility to match the desires of the church to have an authenticity in Christian worship. It allowed worship leaders to not be stuck to a verse-chorus pattern, but to say, as the Spirit of God leads us, we will shift and we will change. And if we need to spend half an hour here singing, God of this city, you know, greater things are yet to come, you know, we'll keep doing it and we will go all night if we have to. And so what was recovered, I think, for the people of God was this idea of moving away from formalism. Yes, we should plan. Yes, we should have yes, we should have thinking. Yes, we should write and memorize scripture, but at the same time we should not deny what God is able to do when we are present, when he is present there with his people as they sing. You know, the third thing if you're outlining here is this contemporary worship does not mean shallow worship. You know, the word contemporary, really, if you break it down, just means con, with, temp, with the times, with 
the times. I don't think it means one particular style, but what it means is that in a language the people around you understand, in a musical style that is not foreign to the people that you are talking to, teaching that is in right theology to address the social concerns and the needs that people have of its day. I think that the Psalms are actually a great example of contemporary worship. You know, Psalm 137 was written to address the exiles who said, by the waters of Babylon, basically we are sitting down and they're weeping. Psalm 51 is a contemporary worship song in which David says, against you only God have I sinned after he killed Bathsheba's husband and took her for himself. Psalm 88 is a contemporary worship song of a psalmist who is so miserable that his song does not end with hope but instead ends with, my only companion is darkness. You know, music-wise, these psalms were actually played to tunes that the people of their day knew. And you can see this written into the little part, which is in italics in our Bible, but it's actually part of the original Hebrew. For example, in Psalm 22, that little part at the top says, to the tune of the doe of the dawn. That's actually in the psalm. It was meant to be sung to a particular tune that everybody knew. See, the church cannot just rely on songs that were written 200 years ago, but the church must continually write rich and contemporary worship that is fitting for the people of God. You know, you think about Mary, the mother of Jesus. She really was a contemporary worship leader as well. That is, she sang to address her situation with the rich biblical theology that was stored up in her heart. You look at Luke, Luke chapter 1, and you see the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 2, and you find Mary's Magnificat, which is her song. Her song contains a whole ton of scriptural references. Habakkuk 3.18, 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11, which is an allusion to Hannah's song. Isaiah chapter 57, Zephaniah 3.17, Deuteronomy, Psalm 107.9, a direct quotation where she says, fill the hungry with good things. The servant Israel that appears in her Magnificat refers actually to the servant songs of Isaiah and a promise to Abraham that his Descendants will be a blessing to the entire world in Genesis chapter 12. Now, most of us, if I were to ask you, where do you find the servant songs in the book of Isaiah? You probably have no idea. But Mary knew. She knew all of these scripture references. And in a moment of extemporaneous song, as the angel talked to her, she burst out basically into singing, praising God for what he did, quoting no less than a dozen scriptures in a short period of time. Now, Mary was really probably a teenage girl, probably about 14 to 16 years old at the time. And I've heard many people say things like, don't worry, if God could use a teenage girl, I'm sure he can use you as well. Well, that's only partially true. How many grade 9 to 10 girls are so Bible-saturated that they're able to quote the Old Testament like that and make a song of it in a matter of minutes? I think if Mary was in the youth group, she would probably know more scripture than her youth pastor. You know, she, she, she is a woman of the word. I don't think it means that we should pray to her. There's nothing biblical about praying to Mary, you know what I mean, in the Bible. But she was a woman of the word. And, you know, we sing that song every Christmas, right? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? The song is misleading, actually, in one sense. It's true. Mary did not know that her baby boy would walk on water. But actually, Mary knew a lot 
and you can read that in her song. Mary knew that her baby boy would sit on David's throne. Mary knew that her baby boy would be king over Israel and he would be called the son of God. Mary knew that her baby boy would fulfill the promises of God given in Genesis 12 to Abraham. Mary knew that this baby was a sign of God's covenant mercy to his people. Mary actually knew a lot. All this to say is contemporary worship does not need to be shallow. And just as the New Testament was written in Koine Greek in the language of the people of the day, not in Hebrew, so also should we sing, I think, in a language, the common language of the people, so that people who hear us sing and watch us live can be introduced to Jesus. You know, church, we sing truth because we can't help but sing about what Jesus has done for us. And actually, maybe you've never thought about this, but singing is actually part of our imitation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself is an excellent singer and a worship leader. You know, Matthew chapter 26, verse 30 tells us that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, his last night here on earth, he sang a hymn with his disciples. And it's most likely we know what hymn that was because during the Passover, they sang Psalm 113 to 118 regularly. And if that was the last hymn that Jesus sang, he most likely sang Psalm 118. Can you imagine Jesus on the night that he is going to die singing verse 6 from Psalm 118? The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what man can do to me. Or verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He knows he's the stone. Or verse 27, bind this festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You know, he would have sung this knowing that he was about to become that sacrifice that was bound not to an altar, but to a cross with nails, placed there to die for the sins of the world. He sang, drawing strength from God's word as he faced the wrath of God alone. When Jesus went to the cross, his mind was not blank, but it was full of the Psalms, not with like Bollywood catchy tunes, but with the Psalms. He was up there fulfilling the Psalms, staying up there until all his bones were out of joint, staying until they divided his garments and cast lots for them. He stayed there until he had the ability to say, I thirst, and they put the sponge up to his face. He stayed until every last Psalm in his heart and in his head that he sang and that he knew was fulfilled. Because for Jesus, the most important thing was that the word and will of his Father be done. For Jesus, the songs of the Psalms were not just something he sang because he liked them. They were his very life. And so I hope it is also for us, church, you know, Jesus sang songs because they were his life. And I want us to sing songs because they are our lives and will help us walk even to the point of death. But there's still something else that we learn about Jesus, and that is found in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Jesus actually waits to sing one more song. Hebrews 2 says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, and that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Now, if you stop and you think about that, who is the he here? The he is actually Jesus Christ. He is the one who sings. He is the one who refers to people like you and me as brothers, not unequal, adopted, you know, or stepchildren into his family that he's kind of ashamed of. No, full children, brothers and sisters that he loves. 
And here you see the resurrected Lord and Messiah standing there in heaven with all the saints around him and says, you are my brother and today I sing with you in the congregation to my Father. I worship with you. So church, you know, one day we will sing and join Jesus as we sing praises to God the Father in the company of the redeemed. See, we sing songs because of what Jesus has done and the song that he has put in our heart because of the gospel. You know, friends, you know, I just want to ask you, for those of you here, some of you might not know Jesus, I just want to ask, what songs do you sing in your heart? What do you live by? Do you live by the tune that your boss sings to you, telling you that you need to get ahead in life or that you're a failure because maybe you don't make enough money? What is, the, what is the genre of music, not that you hear on the radio, but the one that plays inside of your soul, that defines you and says, yes, if you have me, you listen to me, all will be well with you. What do you actually live by? What do you sing inside of your soul? Do you have songs or do you have a repertoire of songs that will allow you to sing even when you are heading towards death and your time on earth is done? You know, the song that, Ryan, that uh, Jason just sang here, I've Decided to Follow Jesus, is, really has an interesting story behind it. It comes from India, actually, from a man named Noxang, who him and his family were converted and became Christians uh, through the work of a Baptist missionary. And as the chief and the villagers dragged them out to threaten them for becoming Christians and telling them to recant to their faith, he sang the words, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. And then they killed his children in front of him. And they asked him one more time to recant. And Noxang refused and said instead, Though none go with me, still I will follow. And then they killed his wife next. And they looked at him and said, Will you recant? And then he gave the last words, The world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back, no turning back. The chief ordered his execution, and as the chief stood there looking at all the bodies of the family that he had killed, he was struck by realization then at that moment that whatever it is that he died for must be real. The chief was so overcome by his emotion at watching this man, and it, watch, watching this man, his children, and his wife die that he turned actually his life over to Jesus and led the whole village to Christ later. Nobody could ever have imagined that. That song was later recorded you know, and set uh, to music and the hymn that we love today. But my point is this, you know, church, we have every reason to say things like that and sing. There is nothing for us to be afraid of on the other side of death's door because we know one who has gone through that door and come back. And it is his praises that we sing every day. Church, what is the song that you live by in your life? What do you live by? And if you don't know Jesus today, I would say to you that Jesus is inviting you to say, let me be the song of your life. Let me take from you your sin and the way that you have lived and give you a new song in your heart. And that new song is me. Turn your life over to me and I will make you new. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much, God, for your love for us and for giving us a new song to sing as your people. God, thank you so much, God, for allowing us to sing praises to you, knowing that one day, God, we will be a free people, God, never facing sickness, suffering, intense labor, and aging and death again. We will rejoice with all of your saints, God, for all of eternity, and in that day, our joy will be complete. But Father, until that day comes, help us to not just sing with our lips songs about Jesus, but with our very lives as well, so that people who look at us and see the pleasing melody that is our lives will be led to our Savior. 
Help us, God, to be deep in the way that we think, rock solid in terms of what we believe, that the world may know that there is a living Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.